0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening is from Acts chapter 22, verse... Sorry. Uh, Acts chapter 22, verse 30 to... Acts chapter 23, verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord.
0: We are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have spoken to us. What more can you say than you already have said to us in your word? So we pray that we, even in this courtroom drama of Acts 22 and 23, that you might draw us to yourself, that you might comfort and lead us, your people. We pray that we might love Jesus all the more as a result of our time together tonight under your word. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's a torch night, so Debbie, Jordan, Cedric are over here. If you're a fourth through sixth grader and would like to talk about this here courtroom drama uh, with them, with some other peers, feel free to go for it. Uh, my now sixth to seventh grade son just asked, hey, should I go to torch tonight? Because uh, now he's a 7th grader. And I said, yeah, if you want to. Uh, maybe your last time. So, uh, yeah, if you're an incoming 4th grader and you want to go to the Torch for the first time tonight, uh, or if you want to go, if you're an incoming 7th grader and want to go to Torch for the last time tonight, perhaps, uh, y'all have fun. Uh, well, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, again, as Clint said earlier, we'd love to meet you after the service if we haven't gotten a chance to Say hello and welcome you to Albuquerque or welcome you to Christchurch uh, and as I said we've got a courtroom drama here we've been For almost nine months or so now, been walking through the book of Acts, and our culture just loves courtroom dramas. Uh, Intuitively, I think as humans, we have this longing for justice, uh, but especially when you can put a good, compelling soundtrack and interesting characters and well-written dialogue, Uh, we really, really like them. And one of our favorite kinds of story is that of the falsely accused story, or at least perhaps the unjustly accused accused. So we've got movies that we all love, like The Fugitive, like Shawshank Redemption, like Just Mercy, A Few Good Men, uh, even Les Miserables. Uh, These are all just stories that we long for, and we long for uh, a good resolution. And of course, the writers of these stories usually give us good resolution because it, it, it points us to a deeper resolution that I think we as humans all long for. Well, we've been tracing Paul's story of following the story of Jesus. Paul's story looking very similar to Jesus's own story. And even here, we see see lots of similarities in Paul's trial here in Jerusalem. We're going to see Paul brought before the Sanhedrin, the religious and political council of the Jewish elders. And while he is treated in many of the same ways that Jesus himself was treated in front of the Sanhedrin, uh, significantly then, uh, I asked Danny to stop reading right there in verse 11, but she even gave us a little hint at where this is going. Different than Jesus, uh, Paul leaves Jerusalem, he is delivered out of this city, but it is actually because of Jesus' execution and resurrection, that Jesus was not delivered in his life and ministry out of Jerusalem, that now uh, Paul will be able to. That despite the intense opposition of the world, Jesus himself will shepherd, shepherd his people. So we've got a lot to get to and consider tonight, so let's just get right after it, thinking about this text in two halves. The first half that Danny read for us, that of falsely accused, but then divinely delivered falsely accused, divinely delivered. So where we left off last week, uh, the, Roman, the Roman Tribune, uh, he is completely surprised at the end of chapter 21 that Paul, we saw this last week, Paul started speaking to him in the educated Greek language. He thought, the Tribune thought, that Paul was this Egyptian guy, a, a leader of a group called the Assassins or the Dagger Men. And then uh, being this more educated guy, uh, that the Tribune was surprised by. Then Paul preaches to the city of Jerusalem in their own language, claiming to them that the Jesus that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus of Nazareth is one with the Father. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to be a faithful Jew is to actually follow Christ. And yet. That part didn't really set off the crowd. What set off the crowd, we saw last week, was when Paul said that God had sent him, God had sent Paul, to preach the kingdom of this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world, to a world that the Jewish world thought and understood didn't give a flip about God, didn't, give, didn't care at all about godliness. And so, this angers them, and they want to kill him. Uh, the, the Roman soldiers rescue him out of there, and then Paul pulls the ace out of his sleeve uh, by saying to the Roman soldiers who are about to beat him uh, that he, in fact, is a Roman citizen as well. He's a Roman citizen by birth. He has rights that prevent him from being beaten, and that actually demand a fair trial. So, we thought about last week that Paul's uh, earthly identities that of being a Jewish man and being a Roman citizen actually aren't in conflict uh, with his citizenship in heaven, but they are always subservient to, the, to his heavenly citizenship. But now, now claiming his Roman citizenship and his right to a fair trial, in verse 30, we read this, on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. The Tribune has actually figured out, he doesn't quite know what's going on, especially if Paul was preaching in a different language that he didn't understand. Uh, He doesn't know the ins and outs of what's going on, but he has understood that this is a theological dispute going on. They're upset because some uh, point of theology. And unless theology of these conquered states of Rome are causing uh, these cities or states to erupt in violence, the Romans are pretty much okay with just people believing whatever they want to believe. Kind of a live and let live in theological matters. But since this theological matter actually is causing this whole city to about to want to erupt into violence, he actually wants to get to the bottom of it. So he opens up his uh, GroupMe app, and he finds the thread labeled the Sanhedrin. Perhaps he even has, in Latin, a little parenthetical phrase of like the religious council to remind him of what what that is. And he sends a note uh, really quickly saying, meeting now, get here, okay, thanks. And then the Sanhedrin all gathers real quick. Uh, So they meet, and Paul immediately has the floor. Paul has the floor, both as defendant as witness, and as his own attorney in front of this uh, really quickly put-together council. And standing in front of the council, in verse 1, chapter 23, he looks intently at them and says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. He he says this kind of thing all over his letters— he says that he has, uh, he, he lives his life in good conscience. He says he even lives his, has lived his life blamelessly many times throughout his letters. He's not saying that he has never sinned. After all, he calls himself in 1 Timothy 1, the chief of sinners, the, the very foremost of sinners. But what he is saying when he's standing here before the, con- the council, saying that he is, has lived his life in good conscience, is that he is saying that he has walked actually in reverence to the law. They are accusing him of being like this, this anarchist, They're just making things up as he goes and leading people away from the God of Israel, but he's not saying that. He's, saying, he's not saying that because Jesus has forgiven my sin, now I can just live however I'd like to, no. Remember what we thought about before that the forgiveness of our sins, our, our justification is actually not the end goal, is not the end purpose of the cross our justific- justification, our forgiveness uh, by God of our sins is just a means to an end. That of our sanctification, that of our being made like Christ, of being God's children, being, being living, desiring, and loving like Jesus does, who fulfilled the whole goal in the purpose of the law, that of to love God and to love neighbor. So Paul is saying, I am I'm living my life in good conscience. I am not living however I'd like. I am walking in obedience to God. But secondly, when he's saying something like this, that he's lived his life before God in good conscience, he's saying that, again, not that he is without sin, but when there is sin, he is moved to quick repentance. That of confession. And when he has sinned against others, he's likely saying that he has moved towards reconciliation. Like, Can you imagine the life and the witness of our community to the city around us, who are a people together, yes, who are pursuing holiness. But we are together pursuing humility. We are together pursuing love. We are together pursuing reconciliation with one another. We are a, a people of repentance and faith, turning to Jesus, turning to the love of God. We, we sang earlier, be of sin, the double cure. Jesus' blood for us actually has a double purpose. To save from wrath, yes, but to actually then make us pure, to make us people of Obedience and of faith, but then of people who are of horizontal reconciliation, quick reconciliation with one another as well, just as Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 when he said, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think this is the kind of life Paul is saying that he has walked in and lived in that of good conscience vertically with God his Father and that of good conscience horizontally with his brothers and sisters. And so he is saying that he has lived his life in the open and before God. And now he stands here before the Sanhedrin, before this council, with a good conscience. He's not, he's not, there's not some hidden sin that he is feeling weighed down by. There isn't unconfessed, undealt with sin in his life. Now, of course our consciences can be weak. Sometimes our conscience is like like a weak or atrophied muscle. It needs to be something that is strengthened. We can often really be guilty of something that we don't feel bad about. That can be true. But Paul is saying, brothers, he calls them brothers, he's saying, I'm not going to buckle here. You can't just accuse me of something and then I'll just admit to it. A position that Martin Luther would take 1500 years later when Martin Luther said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me amen. And he sat down. Now, we all wish he would have said, here I stand, I can do no other, but he probably didn't say that, although it was a good flourish to add to the later history. But man, this is the same kind of thing that Paul is saying. Brothers, I have lived my life in good conscience. Here I stand, I can do no other. So go ahead and accuse me, but I'm not going to buckle here. And so, in response to this, Ananias, the high priest, tells his minions to punch Paul straight in the mouth. Our ESV says strike in the mouth, and I I don't—I think I can kind of blow by that. some, Some guy walked straight up to Paul and right hooked him, right in the face. And now being punched in the mouth, maybe wiping blood off his lip, Paul says this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck, to be punched? Paul says, these people, these men in this council are breaking the law. Multiple places in the law where where the accused should not be beaten until they are proven guilty. But this whitewashed wall stuff might remind us of something that Jesus called the Pharisees by. He called them whitewashed tombs, nice and pretty outsides, just masking the death within. Essentially living the opposite of Paul's life of before God with a good conscience. But likely here, Paul doesn't have Jesus' phrase in mind, that of a whitewashed tomb. He likely has a phrase from Ezekiel 13 in mind, when he calls them whitewashed walls. In Ezekiel 13, God, through Ezekiel, condemned the prophets of God. They built a wall uh, that intended to to keep God from the people. They whitewashed it. They made it look really good and nice. And this is the chapter, Ezekiel 13, where God condemns the prophets who say that there is peace when there is no peace. Who are just appeasing people's consciences without cleansing or cleaning their consciences. And God tells those prophets, I am against you. Even people that had been appointed to speak on behalf of God, God himself says, I am against you. Paul is saying that this Sanhedrin, are false prophets, whom God is against, but even more than that, they are themselves the wall. They're looking good, but they are keeping people from God, even though God had, through Christ, completely obliterated separation from him. Through Christ, he had turned condemnation upon himself, the triune God, so that those who would come to him would actually and truly find real and lasting peace with God, where there actually can be peace. But all of this doesn't go over very well. I don't know what Paul's tone of voice was, if he was yelling at them, or just kind of saying it like I was saying it, just kind of under his breath. Whatever and however he said it, it did not go well. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, "You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people." Again, Paul here is showing that he still cares and honors the law, uh, cares about and he honors and reveres the law. He quotes Exodus 22 here. But there have been lots of ways of understanding what Paul is doing here. Uh, like, really, he didn't know who he was talking to when he said all of these things. Like my, he might have been saying. You're right, kind of like I was just reading it like, sorry, sorry guys, you're right, I, I, I do remember Exodus 22 now. You're right, I'm sorry, I was out of line. Uh, or perhaps of the kind of like the group me message thrown togetherness of this council, uh, perhaps the high priest might not have been wearing his, all of his garb, and Paul himself has been gone from the city for 10 years. Maybe he doesn't even know what the high priest looks like. Uh, he didn't realize who he was talking to. Or maybe this is kind of a sarcastic dig here from Paul. Like, the way that you are handling this proceeding, the way that you are handling the law, sure looks like you are not the high priest. But for whatever reason, Paul realizes that his words of confrontation and correction aren't going to be received well, so he decides right then and there to take a different approach. He's going to turn the focus off of him, turn the focus on Christ, but he's actually going to uh, then try to very strategically and wisely divide the room. He figures out that half of the room are Pharisees. These are religious hardliners who want a very strict Jewish identity built on the law. And then the other half of the room are Sadducees. These are the wealthier ruling class. The high priest, the temple priest, they were all Sadducees. They had a very friendly relationship with the Romans. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and they denied any hope for the resurrection of the dead which means they probably had some sort of a Greek understanding, that of like a spiritualized, uh, disembodied, um, eternal life. Or perhaps they just thought that uh, there was no existence after death. We don't quite know. But what Paul essentially is doing uh, is after he apologizes, saying, you're right, I'm sorry I shouldn't have spoken that way. Uh, He says, this actually brings me to my next point. Uh, The resurrection of the dead, huh? What do you guys think? Which is the modern day equivalent of like walking into a room and saying like, so critical race theory, what do you think? Uh, And then just letting people tear each other to shreds. The only problem is, That is exactly what happens, but the problem is, is that Paul is right in the middle of it. They are trying to tear each other to shreds, but he is in the middle. And so, uh, the irony is thick here. The Romans rescue him again. For Paul to get a fair trial, he has to get rescued from the Jews, from God's people, by the Romans a third and about to be a fourth time. But the Tribune now definitively knows that this actually is just a theological matter, as Paul will tell many more Romans over the next few chapters. He is not an anarchist. He is not violent. He's not trying to overthrow Rome with this new theology or something. He just happens to believe that a carpenter is fully God and fully man that this man lived a fully righteous life, that he fully paid for the sins of his people on the cross, that he has been fully raised to new life and now sits at the right hand of the Father as his work is completed. And on top of that, the living and the dead who trust in his work on their behalf will then one day burst forth to new life out of the grave or out of the ocean or out of their ashes or wherever their dead bodies were left. That's all. These are crazy things that Paul is saying that he is believing, and of course they have implications for his life, for his political life, but he is showing that he, in fact, is not a traitor to Rome. He is not an insurrectionist. He just happens to believe that there is a king above them all. And so while falsely accused and temporarily saved here by this tribune, Paul is not exonerated. He's not been saved from the threat of death from the threat of death that is coming, perhaps in the morning, from these crowds and these leaders. But now that's coming. After having been falsely accused by the crowd, he will now be divinely delivered. Now, what happens next, I think is actually the high point of the text. It is the continental divide. If you drop a drop of water on verse 11, it's either gonna flow this way or that way on everything that that we're considering tonight. Except I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that verse 11 was so important until like the fourth or fifth time that I read this earlier in the week. I read, I just blew through it like completely unfazed. But can we read this again and actually take in what Luke says happened? The following night in verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is astounding. We've seen angels appear and deliver Peter and Paul from prisons before in the book of Acts. But here Luke says that Jesus himself, the Lord, comes to Paul telling him to take courage. He has bigger plans yet for Paul. Now two weeks ago we thought about and considered We decided perhaps that Paul wasn't in disobedient defiance against uh, the spirit who in the face of pushing through many people who were warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem because he would be arrested there. uh, I think this seals the deal, that Paul was actually not being disobedient in coming to Jerusalem. God's providence has brought Paul to a place of struggle, has brought him to a place of threat, of violence, of possible death, but Jesus has plans for his kingdom in and through this struggle. And Paul should take courage for two reasons. One, Jesus is powerful and wise. What Jesus has just told Paul here, Jesus has essentially just guaranteed Paul that he will become Essentially like an unkillable immortal until he gets to Rome, right? I mean, he's saying, I'm not just wanting you to preach here in Jerusalem. I will have you preach in Rome. And so everything that happens between now and you getting to Rome, don't worry about it. As David says in Psalm 139, or Job says in Job 14, that God has numbered our days and he has given each of us a set allotment from eternity past. God knows both both our birthday and our death day. And from every day that we get further away from our birthday, we get closer to our death day. And God knows them all. The moment that each of us dies will not be a moment too soon or too late, outside of the wise providence of God. Now, unlike Paul, I don't know of—well, I certainly haven't—I don't know of any of you who have directly heard from the physically present Jesus of the time or the number of days that he has numbered for us. And so, human responsibility is still absolutely upheld and maintained throughout the scriptures. We should actually wear a seatbelt, not thinking that, well, I'm an immortal until God has numbered our days. Yes, that's true. And yet, We also, human responsibility is upheld time and time again throughout the scriptures, and so we should not live in reckless irresponsibility. But the doctrine of God's sovereign providence should bring enormous comfort to his people. That if not a bird falls to the ground, we don't live in a city where there are like tons of trees and stuff, but we still got birds around here, right? Uh, Not as many as maybe other cities, but you see a lot of birds every day. And if not one of those little things can fall to the ground without, or being outside of the will of our Father in heaven, then how much more for our lives? Those whom he has created in his image. We don't know the time and the place of our deaths, but because God does, we do not need to live in fear. And so, like Jesus tells Paul, take courage. Jesus is like Gandalf in that way. He is never late. He is never early, but he is always on time. And so, we can also take courage for a second reason, though. Jesus is not only wise and powerful, but he is present and he cares. Jesus' last words to his apostles in Matthew's gospel is this. He says, And behold, I am with you until the end of the age. This is before his ascension. He's saying, I'm about to go away, but I am actually with you until the end of the age. This book ends the entire book of Matthew, where in chapter 1 of Matthew, Jesus is introduced as Emmanuel, God with us. So in Matthew 1, he is God with us, and in Matthew 28, he will be with us until the end of the age. The story of the incarnation of Jesus, that of God being made flesh, the divine taking on the human, is the story of God coming near of care, of comfort. Jesus, the Lord himself, comes to Paul in this evening. Not an angel, not a messenger from God, not a text message or an email saying that, hey, be cool, take courage, you'll get to Rome. No, Jesus himself comes to deliver the message. This story of God being near is a story that was building in Israel's history. After all, David wrote in Psalm 23 what we read tonight in our profession of faith. David wrote that psalm a thousand or so years before the time of Christ. We read this a few minutes ago. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has always been a very near and present God, but then it just gets twisted right up to 11 in the person of Jesus. He comforts us with his presence, or as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, to cast all your anxieties on him because, why? Because he's powerful? Because he can shoulder them? No, what does Peter says? Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He is a good shepherd. And you guys, I've seen it. I've seen it, these two realities, that Jesus is both wise and powerful, and that Jesus is present and that he cares to be of immense comfort this week. On Thursday night, one of you told Marcy and me that after a particularly stressful uh, day, after an angering moment earlier in the week, you just had to go for a walk. And on this walk, you just kept repeating to yourself, He sees, He knows, He cares. He sees, He knows, He cares. And while you were struggling, even days later, you were resolutely holding on to this reality that the Lord Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He sees, He knows, He cares, and it's true. We must, we must believe it. But the night before that, I stood at the foot of an ICU hospital bed with a dear friend from another church whose wife was extremely sick. This is a bad idea (laughs) to talk about this. This is a bad idea. But uh, as we stood there and we cried and he prayed at this brother, he quoted uh, a Tim Tim Keller quote that's been helpful to us for many years, that we can be sure that God will answer our prayers precisely in the way that we would want them to be answered if— we knew everything God knows. And we cried out together to God for healing, knowing that he could do so like this. But together, trusting in God's wisdom, in God's caring kindness. And then on Friday when she died, um, our brother, through uh, heaving wails, cried out to the Lord, he gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of our God. He told his children of the wisdom and the love of God, resolutely holding on to the certainty of the resurrection. All of those songs that we, man, in God's providence, we put this liturgy together on Monday before any of this, uh, before this friend of many of yours um, went through this week that he went through. He and his family have gone through and, uh, We've just sung and professed all night long of the certainty of the resurrection, the good care, uh, the nearness of God with his people. Uh, What song did we just sing? The song of illumination. How firm a foundation. Fear not, I am with you. Uh, I don't know if you all were singing, I could hear you. I wasn't. Uh, I was just crying uh, the whole time through tonight. But how good is our God, our Savior, and our Shepherd? It did not appear physically uh, in the hospital this week, as he did with Paul in Acts 23. But he speaks to us every day in his word. What more could he say than he has already said? You guys, the faith that I got to observe this week uh, in the hospital did not come out of nowhere. Uh, It was forged in the bright and sunny days, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of reading the Bible and of prayer of this family, of knowing Jesus so deeply in the light that they held so tightly onto him in the darkness. He is a good shepherd. He leads us, he makes us lie down, he restores us, he comforts us, he will not leave us and yet, he calls us to know his voice, to come to, to recognize his voice and to follow him nearly, to follow him closely. We can't do that if we just kind of just wait for tragedy to strike and hope that he'll show up miraculously there in the moment. He might. We must know him now so that we can hear his voice, recall his voice, and trust him. So, sheep, beloved, take courage. Live boldly for him. Encourage in faith. Take him at his word, that he is better and more satisfying than the lesser gods that promise you comfort, but that never keep their promises like he does. He will be there until the end. Okay, let me see if I can bring us back here. Uh, all right. Yeah, the water, a drop of water, has fallen and hit the continental divide here on verse 11. 11 the divide of chapter 23. So we're gonna follow this water downstream quickly throughout the rest of the chapter. Uh, Since I asked Danny to just read through verse 11, let me just tell you what happens. Uh, 40 or so Jewish dudes, they make an oath that they're not going to eat or drink until they've killed Paul. They're pretty serious about this. They're like Saul, King Saul uh, in 1 Samuel 14, who made an equally foolish and equally rash oath. Just out there living and shooting from the hip, living on a whim rather than waiting on, rather than trusting in, rather than hearing from the Lord. And so these guys, these 40 or so guys go to the Sanhedrin telling them to ask the tribune to bring Paul to them again the next day for another day of trial. But their plan is when Paul gets delivered to the Sanhedrin, they're going to wait in ambush and kill Paul. And the problem is we all know what happens to secrets, right? Uh, People like to share them, Uh, People like to gossip, to prove to others that they have some other secret knowledge that others don't. And so that's what happens. This conspiracy starts to spread throughout Jerusalem, so much so that Saul's nephew—hey, Saul's a normal guy. Uh, Saul has a sister who has a son. Saul has a nephew. Uh, Why wouldn't he? Anyway, Saul's nephew, or Paul's nephew—sorry, I'm going back and forth from Saul and Paul—but Paul's nephew brings the news to Paul. And Paul tells this news of this conspiracy to the centurion, who then takes the nephew to the tribune. And when the nephew shares this conspiracy with this Roman tribune, he sends the nephew away and tells him not to tell anyone that you've told me this. And then the, centur- the tribune then calls two centurions. Centurions means that these people are over 100 men. Century, our word of a 100 years, century, centurion. When you are over 100 men. So not surprisingly, having called two of these centurions, they get their 200 soldiers with them to transport Paul out of here. Now, 200 Roman soldiers should pretty easily take care of 40 Jewish guys who are starving. But no, let's not stop there. For good measure, the centurions also then get 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen as well. He also gets a couple of horses for Paul to ride. Like I said, Paul has practically become an unkillable immortal. He is protected by an escort that would be fit for a Caesar. And yet he sends Paul along and out of there with a letter to take to Felix, the governor of the entire region of Judea, the same role that Pontius Pilate played 25 years earlier. We'll get to Felix next week. But the tribune sends Paul with this letter, and he writes, "Claudius, in verse 26, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor of Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I dissent to him at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so the soldiers safely deliver Paul to Felix in this very Roman city up in the north in Caesarea, where Felix receives him. He reads the letter. He agrees to give him a hearing uh, once his accusers arrive, which we'll get to next week. But here's the thing. I said the soldiers delivered Paul to Felix, which they did. But I subtitled this section of this sermon, of this text, as divinely delivered, which I am convinced is as equally true. This tribune thought he would just completely overkill it with 400-something soldiers to protect this one man. But here's what's happening. The triune God, just as was the case in the crucifixion of Jesus, is moving and acting in the world through the freely made decisions and actions of humans, even those humans who hate him, to accomplish his purposes. To make sure that this man gets to Rome, that the gospel is preached to the very highest places in the known world. To accomplish his purposes, and what purposes? Well, Philippians 2, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The triune God will make sure that this is happening in and through some of those who are not his people, but certainly through the spoken words and profession and preaching of his people. And this is why we still are so energetically excited about sending you all as well. Some of you who are back here for the summer with us. Some of you who we want to keep sending. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not out of coerced submission like the Caesars or religious leaders of this text or something, but out of joy. Out of worship for the love and the beauty of Jesus. As we come to the table tonight, we're going to introduce a new song to you. We're going to sing... These words, now see the Savior lifted up, the Lamb who reigns in splendor, the hope of every tribe and tongue. His kingdom is forever. How worthy, how worthy, how worthy the king in all his beauty. We don't just worship this king because he is powerful, because he is so wise or something. Well, that's true. We worship this king who is powerful and wise, but who is beautiful, who is present And who cares? This is our hope. This was Paul's hope. The king in all his beauty is our comfort, is our reason for courage, to take courage that he sees, he knows, he cares. And because of all of this, we can then sing, It is well with my soul. Until finally, that day when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so, it is well with my soul unto the resurrection of the dead and the glory of Jesus is praised and worshipped for eternity. We hope that you have this hope of the resurrection, like Clint said, and I'm sure he'll say again before we leave. Uh, we would love to talk to you about this Jesus. Um, if you don't have this hope, if you actually are sitting, sitting in that hospital room, my friend with his children said better to go to the house of the morning than to feast in the house of the living. He said this to his sons. Why? Because he was saying, your mother is now beholding the face of Christ forever. But now we can be confronted that we too will one day die. We too are not guaranteed tomorrow. How good to have this opportunity to thank God for his work in her life and now to consider our own. So perhaps even uh, you didn't, maybe didn't come to uh, sit through some blubbering preacher, talk about death uh, all night long, uh, but perhaps tonight you might be confronted with the reality of your own coming and imminent death, that it is a certainty, and yet we can have hope beyond it. So we would love to talk to you about this hope that we have. We hope that you would join, you, jo- you would join us in this hope that we might worship together the King in all of his beauty. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the hope that you have given us, that you have adopted us, your children, through the work of our older brother Jesus, who has lived righteously, who has died substitutionarily on our behalf, who has loved us to the uttermost. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would comfort um, the hearts of our friends uh, across town. God, fill us, fill them with the hope of the resurrection, fill them with the reality of your nearness to them, that you would keep your promise to draw near to them, to draw near to us as we draw near to you. Help us to firmly fix our hope and our faith to you in these times of light so that we will hold so more tightly uh, in times of darkness. Give us the strength, we pray, uh, to to follow Christ. We know that you will keep and, uh, and uphold us unto the end, but help us to fix our hope and faith in him. Until that end, we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.